Uh, before we begin by reading the text uh, today, uh, and we do look at two short passages from uh, the Word of God from the book of Acts, but before we do that, I, I need to give you a little bit of the background. I mean, today we're talking in the series of, of Lives Transformed. We talked in the first Sunday of a widow transformed, and then we talked last week about a soldier transformed. Today we'll talk about a church leader, forgive me, a Levite transformed. Because really that's what it was. And then next week, God willing, we'll talk about a brother transformed, each in turn. You see, God's grace transforms us. I've heard people say, oh, God loves you just as you are, and that's a half-truth. <laughs> His love finds you where you are and loves you there in all of that mess, loves you enough that he sent his son to the cross to take care of the debt to justice you owe and work by his spirit to bring about repentance, confession, and faith in your heart, but then engrafts you into his body, makes you one of his children with a heart now that loves him and resonates with who he is that admires and worships and adores the wonderful, gracious God that we have who's revealed himself to us and desires to mirror it in our lives. And as we do that, we want to please him because we love him. And as we want to please him, we ask, how do we know how to please him? God works all things together for, for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. Well, if we love him and want to please him, how do we know how to please him? He tells us it's right here. That's why the Great Commission includes Jesus' words, teaching them to obey everything I've taught you. What was that? The whole of the scriptures. <laughs> And so we want to conform our lives out of love, not because that makes God love us. God already did. His love found us out when we were unlovable, really, except by God in Christ. But then God doesn't leave us there. See, he loves us in order to change us, transform us. Transform means change. In what way? to be reflections of Jesus, the one we love and adore and want to be like because we love him. And that means we change. And that means sometimes we have to come to grips with the fact we've grieved our Heavenly Father and that we need to do something about it. We talk about the holiness of God, and, and rightly so, in the, in the songs that we've sung. Holy, holy, holy. You know where that comes from primarily? The sixth chapter of the prophet Isaiah, where he says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. It's not a railroad train. That's the train like a, of, a, of a bride, only in his case, the robe of a king filling the temple. And the place is filled with smoke and the foundations shake as the reverberations of the flying angels echo back and forth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Sabaoth of hosts of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. The New Testament writer, the Apostle John, whose letter, love letter, third, last love letter that we have recorded for us, um, Jonathan has just read to us, but he writes in his gospel account, he says, no one has ever seen God at any time. Wait a minute, Isaiah did. Ah, but then John goes on to say, the only begotten of the Father, he has revealed him. And the later verses of that chapter are quoted in John's gospel. In fact, Jesus quotes them. And then is the, the explanatory note by John where he inserts a, a, a commentary and he says, Jesus, this, these verses, Isaiah spoke about Jesus because Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. A pre-incarnational Theophany, we call it, God revealing himself 
to God's people, and he does it through Jesus Christ. Christ, all the way through the Bible. God's plan to bring about redemption. We talked about that plan uh, two weeks ago and how it unfolded, but remember it starts in a garden, moves through a garden, and culminates in a garden. The Garden of Eden is where it begins. The first sin of the first uh, human couple and from it the fall that has affected us all. But a promise there by God that he would make enmity between the serpent, the enticer, the one who represented the work of Satan in tempting between war between the serpent and the woman and between her seed and his seed. And we saw how that unfolded. God calls Abraham, Abram, and changes the name to Abraham, and, and then uh, promises it through his family, through his line, through him, all the families of the earth will ultimately be blessed. There's that line. And then in the time of Moses, uh, God brings out a Hebrew people, and, and makes them into a nation from, from a horde, that's what they were, a mob, two million strong of slaves, newly freed, amalgamated and forged through the experiences of Sinai, meeting with the holy God on the mountain as their representative chosen by God, Moses receives the law and the covenant charter and promises through them that he will bring about his promise to Abraham to give him the promised land. Everywhere Abraham had walked to and fro and that God had promised him where he set his foot, God would give to his descendants. And God did that under Joshua. And he said, you obey my commandments and I'll confirm you in this land. But they didn't. They didn't. Time and again, they, they brought God's judgment on themselves by their disobedience. And time and again, they cried out in their misery. Usually not, Lord, I've, we've sinned against you, and we've grieved your mighty heart, and we deserve this, but please forgive us. No, that wasn't their cry. It was God, this is really hard consequences, like a little child. I don't like the spanking. Stop spanking me. Well, is the child sorry? No. Were the people sorry? Usually, no. But God's merciful heart still sent them deliverers. We call them judges. And, and they time and again delivered the people. And finally, we want a king. And God gave them a king. He was head and shoulders taller than anybody else and looked like the king. But his heart wasn't right. And God said, I'll replace him with one of my own. One after my own heart. A young boy who cares for the sheep. Because his older brothers are the ones who look good and strong and are in the army. God anoints him. And anointing him, the Spirit of God comes on him and young King David, not yet, not yet confirmed in his rule, is able to overcome a lion to deliver a sheep, overcome a bear to deliver a sheep. There aren't bears in the Near East anymore and hardly any lions, but there were then. A boy. That was before he met Goliath, a giant mercenary of Gath. All the, the army, the troops of Israel quailed, and even their first king, Saul, the big tough guy, uh, didn't dare go out to meet him. God had changed David's heart. He'd anointed him with the Spirit of God. That's important. It's no mere boy showing courage. This is God's spirit coming upon a person to do something that prefigured Messiah. Something that shows us something about Jesus. And he stands in the gap and where there's no power, humanly speaking, there is the power of God. And he overcomes with a sling and a stone. The mightiest soldier on the field that day. Save one. The boy who slew him. God established that kingdom and through his son Solomon built the temple and everything looked like it might be going well finally, but it didn't. The king's heart followed the people's heart instead of leading the people and they fell into 
disobedience and rebelled and God broke the kingdom in two. The northern kingdom forgot the worship of God three times a year. They were forbidden by their kings in every dynasty in the northern breakaway ten tribes. And every king, however capable, has the postscript of the almighty God in scripture. He did evil in the sight of the Lord because he never turned from the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, the first king of the northern kingdom, the first rebel king who caused Israel to sin. Counterfeit temples in the north and the south of that kingdom, counterfeit uh, altars, counterfeit priests, and even golden calves, idols, whom they name Yahweh, the Lord. God said, I'll sweep them away, and he did. Some moved south, the time of the Assyrian invasion that swept them away, but then those in the south continued for a while. They had some good kings but, and revival times, but it didn't last, and finally, God did what he had said he would do back in the time of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. He said, I'll carry you into captivity and that will cure you of your external, at least, external idolatry. And it did. And they were carried into captivity in Babylon. Babylon was overcome by Persia, Persia by Greece. But under Persia, God had said two centuries before it happened through Isaiah that he would bring a person, a king named Cyrus, to the throne who never knew the Lord, but that he would be God's agent, used by God, orchestrated, in spite of his not being aware of it, to bring about the restoration of the exiled people of God. And so they were there for centuries, four centuries, awaiting Messiah. No word from a prophet for 400 years of silence. Meanwhile, things are happening Alexander has conquered the Persian Empire. It's immediately fallen into pieces, three big, huge chunks primarily. And the middle one is most of the Middle East and all across uh, Central Asia. And um, Palestine finds itself in that place. The little kingdom of Israel is not really independent most of that time. They're still occupied. They're still waiting waiting, waiting for the promised one, looking for a word from the Lord, and there is silence. They have the scriptures, the Old Testament that we have today. They divide them differently. It's 22 Hebrew books, and we have 39 in our English. That's because they break, uh, they put together things like First and Second Chronicles. They put together uh, Joshua and Ruth and, and so on or Judges and Ruth, and so on. And they, they cluster them differently. They're the same scriptures that we have in the Old Testament. But they were waiting. But something else has happened. During that time, the Jewish diaspora begins, even before the restoration of the Jews to their homeland. And the Jewish diaspora extends past Israel into the Mediterranean, to Cyprus and on into, into Greece and places like Corinth. And on beyond that, it's of course in Asia Minor, but even in Rome and probably beyond. And then westward all the way to the frontiers of China through Pakistan and North India. Jewish communities dot the old uh, Silk Road. Well, that's interesting. What's that got to do with uh, what we're talking about today? Everything. Everything. Because you see, God had gone before these events. He prepared the way. There were these center places, these hubs, to which the gospel could come, and there would be a nucleus of people, both Jews and God-fearers, that is, Gentiles who were not Jews, but came and sat at the back and listened because they were interested in the God of the Bible. 
And missionaries, when they reached these places, the first century missionaries, whether apostles or other Christians, would seek out those places first. And from there spread out the gospel. And very quickly, in less than a century, Christianity permeated not only the Roman Empire, but all the way across and well into Western China and North India. That's another lecture I'd love to give it, but that's not a part of this message today. But what is a part is this. <coughs> there was a, a uh, Jewish diaspora presence and community in Cyprus. And there, among them, was someone descended from the tribe of Levi. You remember Levi? One of the twelve sons of Jacob. In an earlier age, he, uh, <clears throat> he uh, joined up with, uh, with Simeon, took swords in hand, and uh, through, through uh, deception <clears throat> and violence, slew all the men of the city of Shechem in Canaan. In the time of uh, Patriarch Jacob, Jacob placed a judgment curse upon them. Upon Simeon and one on Levi, and the one on Levi said he'll have no inheritance in the land. Sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? Meaning his descendants have no inheritance in the land, and the land, they thought, was what God, what linked them to the God of Abraham. You know what God did? <laughs> He's a gracious God. You know what God did? He said, the Levites will not have any, the tribe of Levite will have no inheritance in the land. They can have certain cities, Levitical cities of refuge and around those and, and 48 other cities which aren't cities of refuge but where the Levites can have those towns and there's kind of an apron around them. They can have that. They can buy a home in a regular city and own that. That's a different thing. Everybody can do that. But they didn't have a section of the promised land like all the other tribes that they were to be able to occupy and inhabit. They weren't going to have that, but God says, I have something for them, something better. He says, I'll be their inheritance. Think about that. God says, I'll be their inheritance. Oh, I cheated God. No, hardly. You have God as your inheritance. You have everything. And from among them, from the descendants of Aaron, would come the priests in the tribe of Levi. And the other Levites would have the privilege, the exclusive privilege, of assisting in the tabernacle and later the temple. And when the tabernacle was still in use, it moved around and they were the ones that moved it. Nobody else. They were the ones who collected the tithes from the people and from them had their own sustenance and God provided. And then they tithed in turn to the priestly families. And the priestly families tithed in turn to, what would they do? Whole burnt offerings to the Lord. <laughs> Point is, nobody's exempted from the expression of giving the first fruits to the Lord as, as a way of saying to the Lord, all we are and have belongs to you. Now that does set the, the setting for the text. And now we are ready to read the scripture. If you look at Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, after the resurrection of the Lord and the outpouring of the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost, when Jews and con converted Gentiles, who were now Jews, proselytes, from all over the known world had been gathered in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit was poured out on them and they began to, to uh, with boldness, share the gospel. 3,000 people were added to the to the ranks of the believers in that one day, they grew from 120 to 3,120. That's pretty good in a day. <laughs> uh, the people who study church growth uh, <laughs> would be stunned at that. <laughs> but it kept on going. They, were they would be persecuted. 
kept on going. They would go into the whole world through this network we've just talked about. And it's in that context we read verse 32. In Jerusalem, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Then turn over to, two, to a few verses, 12 verses in chapter 11, verses 19 through the end of the chapter. The section on the church in Antioch. Now, <clears throat> now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus Island, and Antioch in Syria, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, North Africa, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them, encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, later called Paul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Thus far in God's word, let's look to the Lord for a moment. Heavenly Father, as we consider now your word, holy, established, true, would your spirit quicken my mind, my heart, my words, and the hearing of these, your people here assembled. May you work in our hearts and transform us this day by having met here in your presence and heard you speak by your spirit through your word. For we make our prayer in the mighty and majestic name of the King of kings and Lord of lords whom Isaiah saw high and lifted up, even Jesus. Amen. We don't usually serve our beverages, non-alcoholic beverages anyway, uh, in a at tepid room temperature, you know. Most people like their drinks with their meal either cold or hot. God also prefers responses to him that to be either cold or hot. Later on, uh, in another, um, not letter, but book written by the Apostle John, Revelation, uh, God addresses a church at Laodicea, and he says... Uh, your hearts are lukewarm. I wish that you were either cold or hot. Wish you were either cold or hot. Stop and think. 
God wishes they might be cold rather than lukewarm? Yes, because then they might more readily recognize how much in danger they are. But when you're lukewarm, you see, you can still fool yourself into thinking, ah, I'm still a little warm. I'm okay. Nominal believism. God said to the Laodiceans, because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. That's a pretty strong term. It's a warning to us to be careful about that. But you know, even officers of a religious establishment may be spiritually lukewarm. And that was true in Jesus' own time. There were the scribes who were the uh, lawyers, yes, but they were the students of God's word, primarily to nitpick, and by Jesus' day, many of them to uh, uh, try to... Uh, find ways of justifying what they wanted to do and condemning people they didn't like or who weren't as privileged as they were. Jesus condemned them, not because they were students of God's word, but because their motive in doing it was manipulative. And then there were the Levites and the priests, and it was the priests that gathered together the chief priests and the scribes to plot Jesus' death. There were Levites as well. They took turns, you know, going and uh, coming in from their homes in the country or wherever they were to have their turn to serve in the temple, assisting with the sacrifices. That was heavy work, you know. The priests didn't do that. All, all decked out most of the heavy lifting was not done by the priests, but by the Levites. They had an important role to play. But Jesus told the story, you remember, of the Good Samaritan. Remember that? Man fell upon thieves and his travel to Jericho, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And Jerusalem's higher, so everything, Antioch or Jericho is going down in elevation. And um, he was beaten and left, robbed and left for dead. And three people came by. The first was a priest and, oh, no. I went to the other side, you know, I can't be, can't touch, he's, he's probably a Gentile and I, I, and even if he's not, I can't defile myself, you know. Blood defiles a priest. And then I couldn't do what I'm doing in the temple. Thing is, it wasn't his turn in the temple. How do you know that? He was on his way, way from the temple to Jericho. Same thing with the Levite who comes on next in Jesus' parable. He goes around him too. Wide berth here. Don't know, you know, what you might get. And I don't want to be bothered by that. And the third person to come along is... Uh, at best, a half-breed Israelite. See, when, when the northern tribes were deported by the king of Assyria long, long before, Gentile nations were resettled there, and only a few Jews were left among them. And they were taught by their counterfeit priests brought back by the king of Assyria to, uh, to help them learn how to placate the god of the land very polytheistic view of who Jehovah was. And uh, they became the Samaritans. They were viewed as heterodox at best and heretical, at, le at least by most of <clears throat> the Jews of Jesus' day. But I want you to notice that all but one of the references that Jesus makes to the Samaritans are positive in the gospel accounts. He cared for them. They were not outside the orbit of his love. And that one, he also shows a form of love. Because when certain villages rejected the proclamation of disciples who came to them in the name of the Lord, the Messiah is coming, and they rejected Jesus, and James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to... to uh, Jesus and said, you've given us real power. Shall we do what Elijah did? Shall we call down fire from heaven, destroy that village and show everybody what it means if they reject you? Make an example of them. And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. You don't know what spirit you're of. See, Jesus didn't come that way. He came to bring not peace but a sword, but a sword that pierces hearts. Not physically, but through the conscience. 
And he would divide families over the gospel. He said it would happen. But it would be a needful one as people were prompted by the Spirit of God to come back to the God of their fathers. And as we shall see today, the Gentiles as well. So Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, had made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the time of our text for the Feast of Pentecost in keeping with the law of God. He'd probably done that before, perhaps perfunctorily, for years. But this year would be different. The events of that Pentecost that we've just described would radically change the whole course of his life and of the early church as well. See, in the text before us, we're going to look to see first the key truth that God intends the gospel to be transformational. It doesn't leave us as it finds us. It can't, it won't. It'll harden us or it will convict us and mold us into images of Christ, reflections. And that truth, in turn, is underscored by three important observations from our text. God's grace changes hearts, and it changes lives, and it changes communities. Sounds familiar here at CCC, but it's biblical, and it's true. Let's consider each of those observations in turn from our text. First, God's grace changes hearts. Look at chapter 4, verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Now, you need to understand something. Names then are a little different than names today. Names today, people name some, a child perhaps after a relative, or they uh, may name the child because it sounded pleasant. Uh, we named our first child Eric because it sounded Nordic, and, and I like that Nordic name. I, somebody asked me, you know, what's it mean? I hadn't a clue, but, you know, it sounded good. Oh, my goodness. Let me warn you, don't do that, parents, with your children. Find out the name. You could name them Ichabod, which means the glory is departed, and you wouldn't want them to have to wear that all their life. Turns out Eric means destined to rule. And I trust that spiritually he will be one that God uses and so far is serving the Lord as a missionary with mission to the world. But names back then were very significant. And when God named someone or renamed them, that was really significant. God changed Abram's name from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of many nations. And he only had a few sons. One, Ishmael, and later the child of promise through Sarah, Isaac. Later on, a couple of other sons after Sarah's death uh, through subsequent remarriages or wives, and that's another story for another day. Uh, we can't say he only had two sons, but, but the one through whom the promise came was just Isaac. And Isaac has two, just two, Jacob and Esau. And through one of them, Jacob, comes the covenant promise. He has 12 sons. Now we're getting somewhere. And by the time he goes into Egypt, he's a company of 70. And then there's a population explosion in Egypt. That's for another day, but, but here are promises of God coming down. But God had changed Abram's name, and with it came a change of destiny, in a sense. God knew from the beginning what he was going to do, but we didn't. He changed his wife's name from Sarai, which means princess, to Sarah, which means princess. Same thing. So what's the difference? Why'd he bother? Oh, very significant. But it's because her daddy had given her that name, Sarah, she's a cute little princess. But when God says you're a princess, then you're a princess. And so down through history, God gives names. And now through the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, they recognize that the Spirit of God has given certain gifts to this Levite convert from Cyprus, Cyprus Joe. <laughs> yeah, Joseph, 
Um, and um, they rename him Barnabas, son of encouragement. Because they recognize it in him. We're going to see how that works out. In Galatians 2, verse 20, we read, For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the grace of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Transformative. And transformation, you see, begins with faith in Christ. Acts 4.32, it says, all the believers. What's that mean? People of faith. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus and what he's come to do. <clears throat> Many in this room are too young to remember it, but in the middle and uh, last or third quarter of the last century, uh, Marxism throughout the world, global Marxism, seemed to be on the march. And a third of the world's land mass and more than a third of its people were under despotic Marxist communist regimes. People thought, it's unstoppable. It was even very prominent in uh, university faculties. And uh, it was a real issue. And then what happened? There's a collapse of global communism beginning with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Yeah, big changes. Well, what's the difference between Christianity as a movement and global Marxism and others we could talk about? It's this. Those seek to make changes in social structures and assume that if that's done, the rest will take care of itself. That if the right changes, manipulating social structures are done, the rest will take care of itself. We live in a utopia. And it never works that way. Why? Because no matter how you manipulate them, good or bad, even our democracy here, our federal democracy here in, in uh, the United States is very fallible. What's the weakness? The weakness, friends, is us. It's, it's ourselves. It's we. Our own hearts. What can change the hearts? Myths of self-improvement? No. The approach of Jesus confronts the hearts of his listeners. Jesus could say, to Nicodemus in the evening, in the quiet of a private room where no one could overhear except a few of Jesus' disciples, including John, who later wrote it down. Jesus could say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus doesn't just save us, he cleanses us, indwells us, and enables us to live a different, transformed life. Friends, that's the gospel, the gospel of which we have sung earlier in our service. Notice that transformation is the work of God's grace. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 33, when the, uh, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. You see, grace comes from the Spirit of God, that's the context, and brings power through the resurrection of Christ. That's power. Paul would later write to the Philippians that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship together with his sufferings being made conformable even unto his death. So when God changes us, we can't take the credit for it. It belongs to God. First, God changes hearts. Second, God's grace changes lives. Verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, they saw the change in him. They recognized that God was doing a work in him and it endowed him with certain spiritual gifts and he was using them and God was blessing. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, we read these words about the mystery, 
To, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, listen, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And in chapter 3 of Colossians, in verse 3, uh, Paul then in the same epistle goes on to say this. For you died, you died, Past. And your life is, present tense, now hidden with Christ in God. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Transformation. And it affects our attitudes and actions. He's the son of encouragement. His encouragement of the believers, even not only there in, in uh uh, Jerusalem, but they sent him to Antioch. Why'd they send him? I think they sent him for three reasons. One, because there were a lot of people from Cyprus who had gone there and who were engaged in it. And he was from Cyprus, so he had those contacts. Two, because he knew the word of God. As a Levite, he'd have studied the Old Testament scriptures and had been grounded. Three, he was anointed by the Lord, by the Spirit of God, as the son of encouragement, to go and be able to be an encouragement that is informed. Not just rah, rah, whatever you do. But help them in the way. And when he gets there, he sees what's happening. His heart is buoyed. He's full of joy. And he praises God and encourages them. Then say, <gasps> stop this. Your style of songs and music isn't my, our style. We don't do it this way in Jerusalem. And then say that. And say, you came to church in a, in a pullover shirt and jeans? <gasps> the scripture never says you have to wear a tie. Why do I wear a tie? Well, it's ingrained into me in part, you know. I don't know how many people, if I asked you to raise your hand, would say that you wore a tie every day to class in college. <laughs> I'd have to raise mine. <laughs> Once in the Naval Academy, you didn't have a choice. <laughs> Uniforms. But in the Old Testament, the only requirement was to take a bath and put on clean clothes. Spiritually, even that was a lesson. How do we bathe spiritually? The Holy Spirit washes us. How do we put on clean clothes to worship God today? We put on the raiment of the righteousness of Christ. Even that in the Old Testament pointed toward its fulfillment. Um, <clears throat> he encouraged Barnabas, then encouraged Saul, and later called Paul, to, serve him, to join him in serving the Lord in Antioch. Uh, and uh, once you think about that, remember Saul had persecuted the church. He'd been responsible for the martyrdom of many of the relatives of the people in the church in Jerusalem. Okay? He comes after he's converted. He preaches in the name of Christ in Damascus, and then he comes to Jerusalem and does the same thing, and he meets the apostles. Barnabas takes him into the command bunker. Nobody else is willing to take that risk. And in the midst of the fires of persecution, introduces him to, to the apostolic band. The only ones initially there are, are uh, Peter and John. The brother of John James has already been martyred by King Herod by the sword. And uh, there's someone else, the brother of the Lord Jesus, half-brother James, who's there leader of the church. We'll talk about him next week. And, and you have uh, that meeting and they give him the right hand of fellowship and he goes out from there and has to go home to Tarsus. There's no call from any congregation or, excuse me, synagogue saying, come be our pastor, our rabbi. Nobody did that. He had all the credentials. He'd studied under Gamaliel. He had a PhD that would put my two doctorates to shame for his time. And he goes back and undoubtedly shares the gospel as he goes back to tent making. Barnabas remembers him, goes, finds him, and brings him to, the, to Antioch. Why? He's encouraging Saul. He recognizes God is doing something in Saul's life who will become the Apostle Paul. 
brings him to Antioch because Saul is also able to help Barnabas ground the people of God and encourage them there in Antioch. And who better than Saul who grew up in a Gentile city but a Hebrew among the Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee before his conversion. He knew both sides firsthand. God does that. In Philippians chapter 2, the first five verses, this Paul will later say to that Gentile church, if, and the words if here, you can say since. There are three kinds of if clauses, first, second, third clause. Well, one is remote possibility, if the moon were made of green cheese, and of course it's not. Uh, The second one is if, and it may be, if, and it may not be. Eh, If, you know. If uh, it rains tomorrow, and it may or may not. But the third one is the if that means (laughs) that it is. Okay? That's the one Paul's using. We could say since. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, being like-minded having the same love, being one in the spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. I knew a Hindu Brahman, the highest priestly caste, who as a new believer in Jesus began for the first time to serve outcasts living among them and bringing to them the gospel. He would live among them and bring them the gospel. That brought him opposition in India. Previously, he wouldn't even have touched them. Why the change? Listen, here's why. For the first time, he saw both them and himself as outcasts from God, for whom Jesus had died and risen again and had now been brought into the family of the holy God and King of Kings. And he saw himself and others that way. And transformation creates a generous lifestyle. In chapter 4, verse 37, people would sell things and bring them like Barnabas did sold a field and brought the money. All Levites weren't supposed to own property. That was in Israel. This is in Cyprus. Of course they did. And in Israel they could too, in around six cities or in the aprons around the 48 Levitical cities and six cities of refuge among them. And then within the major cities you could have a house. So you could do that. But fields outside of those Levitical cities could only be outside of Israel. And he had one, and it was perfectly fine. He sold it. Oh, the Bible teaches communism, does it? No, not at all. This is more communalism, and it's voluntary. And you don't have to forcibly give everything up and sell everything away in order to belong. It says from time to time people sold things. That means they still had them. And not everybody did all at once. They're just generosity. Notice that. And generosity is what the Spirit of God led them to. Barnabas even ended up giving himself, his life, to missionary service, first in Antioch and then together with Paul on Paul's first missionary missionary journey. Chapter 11 in uh, verses uh, 22 through 25 tell us about how Paul goes and Barnabas goes and brings Paul and uh, brings him back and we read he's a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Notice third though, besides God's grace changing hearts and his grace changing lives, his grace changes communities. Uh, Chapter 4 verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. You don't get that artificially and keep it. You have to work at that, but more than that, you have to have a dynamic that makes it possible. And then out of that comes a heart of generosity. In chapter 11, verse 26, the end of that verse, we read, the disciples are first called Christians in Antioch. What were they called before that? Well, they were called followers of the way. Or they were called disciples. The term disciple is used plentifully throughout the Gospels. And... 
the first half of the book of Acts, and then from that point on, it's not used anymore. Oh, we don't make disciples anymore like Jesus? Of course we do. But the word is used is different. Why? Because the gospel is now reaching out into Gentile areas where the word disciple, as the Jews understood it, is not understood the same way. That's just a philosophical, oh yeah, I'm a follower of uh, Sartre. I'm a follower, good grief, I don't do that. <laughs> I committed suicide. Uh, I'm a follower of, uh, um, you know, of uh, Geth, or I'm a follower of some other writer or philosopher. No, 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 that's not what it means, you see. So instead, they are Christians. That is to say, those on whom the mark of Jesus Christ rests. Marked out. Now, <clears throat> transformation causes people to truly care for each other. We've seen that in how they love their brothers and sisters in Christ as themselves voluntarily contributing to the needs of those facing hardship. The new, the new church in Antioch hears about the hardship coming and they gather money and send it back by their pastors, their leadership, to the elders to distribute in the church in Jerusalem and by that time it was really important. Why? Because many of the early Christians who had pooled their property or simply continued to own it, uh, their property had been divested. Many had been martyred. In any case, their property confiscated. They didn't have much anymore. And now there's a famine and they have less. So the rest of the body of Christ says we're one. We're one in Christ. We'll help you out. Church to church. Early Christians cared for the sick, the, the cast-out infants uh, abandoned on the, on the uh, city dumps, the outcast. They would risk their lives to the danger of disease or to being arrested and, and fed to the lions in the amphitheater. But they caused those who witnessed their courage and selflessness to exclaim, Behold how they love one another. Jesus in the upper room the night he was betrayed said, to his disciples by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another and you know that kind of trans of transformation is contagious my friends bible tells us our text tells us how the number of believers grows multiplies and abounds exceedingly small wonder the jesus who had commissioned them and who commissions us had said, Lo, I am with you, even to the consummation of the age. Changed hearts, changed lives, changed communities as Christ builds his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship you to reflect on some of what you have done in times past and what you have said you continue to do and will do until, Lord Jesus, you come again. Heavenly Father, make us faithful to him, I pray. Transform us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.